Hi, my name is Joe, and I want to tell you about my podcast that I host called Still Unknown, an unsolved true crime podcast. Every other Monday, I talk about a different unsolved murder, disappearance, or unexplained death in hopes that telling these stories will someday bring out the answers that these cases are desperately seeking. You can listen to Still Unknown wherever you are listening to this podcast here. And who knows, you may even be able to reveal the final pieces to help solve a case. So subscribe now to Still Unknown to hear a new case every other Monday, and let's try to solve some mysteries together. Hey guys, this is Tori from Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. My co-host Katie and I drop brand new episodes every single Thursday about all things true crime, horror, and conspiracies. Each week, we pick a different theme like disappearances, unsolved cases, or killer couples, and we tell you all about the crimes that were committed. On every other Tuesday, we take your stories that you write into us and read them for our mini-episodes. Come hang out with us and let us know that the Forensic Miles podcast sent you. Welcome to Forensic Miles. I'm Miles. What's up, guys? It's Sean. And today I think we are going to have our longest episode yet, so I really hope that you all enjoy it. Strap in. Yep. We are going to be covering the Forensic Files episode, Small Town Terror, a.k.a. The Mad Bomber. So let's just get right into it. In April 1989, a pipe bomb was discovered in the parking lot of La Corte Motor Lodge in Grand Junction, Denver, Colorado. The bomb was disarmed without injury. Two years later, within a three-month period of each other, three bombs exploded in the, in the same Grand Junction area. On Valentine's Day 1991, Dennis Lamb was leaving a banquet at 9 a.m. in the morning. He was in the parking lot of Two Rivers, and all of a sudden, there was an explosion. Dennis was hit in the leg by shrapnel, but he ended up surviving. He said that he thought he had been shot, which he kind of had been. Yeah. On Tuesday, March 5th, Dolores Gonzalez wasn't feeling well, and her mother let her stay home from school. Dolores, her mother, and her brother, Gabe Medina, had gone into his van in the driveway of the home. He tried to start it, but it wouldn't start, so he got out of the car and noticed that some wires weren't connected. He connected them, got back in the car, and a moment later, a bomb exploded. Gabe and their mother, Mary, escaped injury from the blast. However, Dolores was not so lucky. She was killed by shrapnel that had been been sent through her body. Her mother was, you know, understandably traumatized. She said she was too scared to leave the house, but she was also too scared to stay home alone. She wanted answers, and she wanted to know what happened to her daughter and who was responsible. It turns out the bomb had been hidden in the rear rear wheel well of the, of the van. 
investigators were trying to figure out what connected these two victims. Why were they the targets of these horrible acts? The components of the bomb were not rare and could be purchased basically anywhere. There was a four to six inch galvanized pipe with two end caps. I think they say they had like a coin. They're called like coin end caps or something. The bombs would be set off in many different ways, fuses, timing devices, or trigger by movement. On Thursday, June 6th, at around 10.30 p.m., Henry Preston Rubel, his wife Suzanne Rubel, and his brother Clyde Rubel were getting back in their car after having dinner at Feedlot Restaurant and Lounge. As they were driving, Suzanne noticed something on the road, a silver cylinder. She kind of pointed it out and she she said like she didn't know what it was, but she thought that it was one of those tubes that are like used in the bank drive through you know, that you put your stuff in and it shoots up. Henry got out of the truck and picked up the object. Immediately when he picked it up, the bomb exploded and Henry was killed on the spot, leaving his body, you know, absolutely mangled and torn apart. Right in front of his family? Right in front of his family. His wife and brother were unharmed. Up until this point, investigators felt that the victims were, you know, somehow connected. However, after this recent bombing, they felt this might not be the case and the victims might possibly just be random. On June 8th, 1991, police believed that the bombings, um, police believes, police believed the bombings to have been done by, you know, a random bomber or bombers. The head investigator at the time said, the reason we're providing more information on the bombing than we have in the past is that there are now concerns that an individual or group of individuals is placing these things randomly, killing whoever is foolishly picking them up. Wow. I mean, I think, you know, we have to kind of think about this time. This was in early 90s. And, you know, now after 9-11, I think a lot of us are, are more conscious and aware of bags or things that are left around and we're probably less likely of that, but this was a small town, you know, there was a different sense of comfort and safety. So was this um, after like the Unabomber stuff? I think that the Unabomber started in the seventies and, you know, maybe lasted a little bit later than this case. So yeah, it was kind of happening at a similar time. Dennis Lamb said in a statement, Dennis Lamb was the, first victim that survived, said in a statement that he believed the bombings were random. He said, I didn't think there were, there was there. I didn't think there was any connection among the three, but I know I'm lucky. I looked back and realized it could have been much worse. He said that although he doesn't live in fear of what happened, he did feel unsettled that, you know, someone was doing this. Another investigator said something a bit different, though. He said, there's probably some motivation. If it appears random now, the motivation's just not known, which, you know, I think was a wise point. Just because something looks random doesn't mean that it is. After Henry's death, the police department encouraged the community to contact them if they saw anything suspicious or unusual. They didn't know yet how the perp was hiding or placing the bombs. The only connection they saw was that they were always kind of in the vicinity of cars, like parking lots, parking garages, the restaurant, or in somebody's driveway on their car. The police department issued a statement that said, we certainly don't want to create paranoia or hysteria in the community, but we do not want pe- or we do want people to be aware that apparently we have a person or persons out there who have no regard for human life. 
The police at this point were particularly concerned about children and encouraged people to remind their children not to pick up any kind of package or item that was unknown to them. So, you know, it was really scary to think about kids running along and picking up a package. I don't know. Dangerous. Seven ATF workers were sent to Grand Junction to investigate the three bombings and see if they could help find the perp. They ended up gathering a list of 30 suspects, mostly people that were known to the police and known to have worked with explosives in the past, which wasn't really rare because um, Grand Junction was like a mining town. So most people were aware of how to use dynamite dynamite explosives and, and stuff like that. In early July, the police department got a hit. An employee of the Readmore bookstore called saying that a man had come in asking her to order a book called The Anarchist Cookbook, which basically contained instructions on how to make a bomb. The clerk refused to order the book, and when the man left, they immediately called 911. James, or Jimmy, Gunrich then became the primary suspect for the bombings. Supposedly, his former employer also came forward and reported some unusual behavior, and it was discovered that James had been near the area of the explosion only hours after it occurred. James had a history of mental health issues, specifically around thinking he was ugly and wanting a girlfriend, and there was a lot of anger towards women um, that came from this feeling of being ugly and not thinking that women liked him. So he was just very angry towards them. He had two suicide attempts. And on the second one, he was brought to a hospital and hospitalized for a while. During the investigation, ATF agents had two conversations with James. In both cases, he voluntarily agreed to speak with them and invited them into his apartment. I did find one article that said that it wasn't voluntary and that the ATF agent illegally put his foot in the door when James tried to close it and like forced his way into the house. So I'm not 100% sure about at least one of these meetings. Hmm. He told the agents that he was aware of the bombings, that he had even heard one that had exploded at the feedlot restaurant because he it, it was like located within five blocks of his home. He claimed that he had never purchased the anarchist cookbook, but he was familiar with it because he had seen it at a bookstore. He also mentioned that in 1989, when the first bomb exploded, he was living in Phoenix, Arizona, so nowhere near Grand Junction. Upon the second conversation, James uh, gave the agents permission to search his home. They found two electrical fuses and a handwritten note that expressed anger, frustration, and threatening violence towards women, which James admitted he had written. Um, There are clips of these. They're really dark and very, um, you know, kind of scary to read. Mm. Um, Some of the quotes say, I've asked everyone I know for help. I hope God forgives me for what I'm about to do. And if you don't, if you won't help me, I'll have to kill some poor innocent strangers. So they were pretty shocking to find. When they discovered this note, they were able to obtain a formal search warrant and did a thorough search of the home. They found another note threatening to kill unspecific people as well as an electrical fuse, needle-nose pliers with wire cutters, metal wires, a soldering iron, and many other tools. Hmm. They did not, however, find gunpowder, explosives, mercury switches, or bomb-making instructions, any diagram at all, or prototype for a bomb. During the investigation, James agreed to speak to one of the agents. He admitted that he had attempted to order the anarchist cookbook, but only an attempt to piss off the woman who was working there. 
So the clerk that ended up calling 911 on him. Hmm. After these conversations, James began to fall uh, to be followed almost every day by the ATF agents. And he kind of knew he would try and make conversation with them to try and explain that he wasn't the bomber. The relationship with these investigators was an interesting one. James was lonely. He didn't have any friends. He didn't have a girlfriend. He was kind of close to his mom, but you know, he did, he was kind of a loner. He wanted this. Right. So having someone to talk to was actually nice for him, but these ATF agents didn't really treat him well at well, they didn't treat him well at all, actually. He was once beat up by, you know, a local person. And instead of helping him, the ATF agents kind of just watched um, watched him get beaten up, which really left James kind of confused. Another time he went to visit his brother's grave, um, his brother, his younger brother had died when he was very young. And the agents told him he should just kill himself so that they could all go home. So... There was this kind of relationship that was he confusing, I think, for James. His tools were taken and tested, and an agent tried to find where the pipe caps had been purchased. After visiting 25 locations with no luck, he finally found the store. It was five blocks from James' home. The employees mentioned that they remember James coming by the store and wandering the aisles where pipes, ammunition, and guns were located. Upon further investigation, though, they could find no proof that James has, had actually been in that store. What's more, they weren't able to find any trace of gunpowder or explosive residue or fingerprints on any of James' belongings that had been seized. Investigators tried to get a confession out of James, so they put wires on his mother and stepfather. But the only thing he said when he was confronted by them was that he was disappointed that they believed he was capable of doing such a thing. Mm-hmm. James never did confess, but he did once say, I'm not the bomber, but I should be a rapist. So I think it's clear at this point that James is suffering from some form of mental illness and, you know, severe depression. Definitely probably good that they're keeping an eye on him. There's something going on. For one reason or another. James was still, however, arrested, even though he didn't confess to this or... Really, there was no proof other than the fact that he lived five blocks away from the store. Um, And he was brought to trial for two counts of murder and related felonies. One major piece of this case was matching tool marks on the bomb with James' tools. John O'Neill had testified in about 456 cases at the time of James' trial. He was, um, I don't really know the exact word for it, but he matched the tool marks with tools. And he'd done this in 456 cases. He did not have any advanced. He did not have any advanced degrees in tool mark analysis. He was qualified only on the basis that he had done this job um, for so long and had training with the ATF. During the trial, he stated that he had identified three tools that belonged to James, to um, the exclusion of any other tool that were used to create the bombs. And they were matched to, I think, a couple bombs, but specifically the one that was used with Lamb and the first bomb that was not actually exploded, the one that happened in 1989. He basically said that all these tools have unique marks, which make unique marks on anything they come in contact with. 
He also said that out of the 10,000 bombs he had seen in his career, the four bombs in question were unlike any he had ever seen and were, in his opinion, made by the same person. But he wanted to make his credentials very clear. He told the jury that he had absolutely no background in statistical theory, inferential statistics, mathematical statistics, probability theory, experimental or experiment design, sampling methods, sampling techniques, quality control, or bias in experiment design. So uh, I don't know about that. O'Neill's evidence was shown as a video and was one of the first of its kind. Basically, the major points of this case were that all four bombs were ident- identically constructed. Three specific, three specific tools of Genrich's matched the bombs, which were the needle nose wire cutters, his wire strippers with a chip in the blade, and his yellow handled pliers. Genrich was the only person who had possession of or access to these tools. He never loaned them to anybody. James Genrich was convicted of two counts of first-degree murder, three counts of use of explosive or incendiary device in the commission of a felony, and one count of third-degree assault. In 1993, James was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He immediately appealed his conviction, but was also immediately shut down, claiming that the tool mark evidence was widely accepted in the field and therefore did not constitute a retrial. Hmm. However, in recent years, the perception of analysis pattern matching like tool marks, bite marks, hair, tire tracks, and even fingerprints started to kind of be called into question. In 2019, a National Academy of Science report was published that basically said pattern matching was, quote, barely a science at all. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like a lot to base the case on. Mm -hmm. One study that was conducted by the National Registry of Exonerations, um, stated that 34% of wrongful convictions were due to faulty forensics. So that's like really concerning. And this is not like DNA. We're talking like fingerprints and hair and, you know, marks. Another study says that out of capital cases, one in 25 is a wrongful conviction, which is insanely high. All this to say that James, who has always claimed his innocence in these crimes, is actively trying to overturn his conviction. He's now 56, and he's been in jail for 26 years. The Innocence Project is currently working on his appeals to um, one day, you know, have James walk free. O'Neill's science had no protocol, no one saying that in order for the tools to match, they had to have a specific amount of matching points in comparison. So basically, like, nobody was really there to say those don't match. In the video that he showed, he was using light in different positions to show that these marks matched. Mm. But he could have also used the light to position it in a way that they matched when they really didn't, which is like a total possibility. And he might not have realized he was doing it. Yeah. Huh. So after he was arrested, then 
I'm going to assume the bombings all stopped or what happened? The bombings did stop. There were no more bombings after this. Um, but to get back into O'Neill um, and this case, which, you know, we're talking about this retrial now, James trying to get a retrial. Um, these are kind of the basis, the basis of why he's trying to do this, why he thinks that he can. O'Neill never submitted his testing into evidence. So he never showed the actual physical items during the trial. Hmm. He only showed the video. And for that, he was held in contempt of the court. When he finally did present his evidence to, to scientific experts that were on the side of the defense, he had placed blue dots onto each of the marks he found to match the bomb. So that's basically creating bias for the scientist. Um, they ultimately concluded that only one of these um, tools matched the bomb, not three. Another interesting fact is that he actually threw away all of his test cuts that didn't match the tools. Hmm. So that's a lot of bias when you only so see only these things the that actually match. Exactly. Yeah. This obviously brings into question the validity of, you know, a lot of these pattern matching techniques. Um, there's one big article that I'm referencing for this particular episode um, called Forensic Science Put Jim Jimmy Genrich in Prison for 24 Years. What if it wasn't science, which was published in 2018. Um, and they have some really interesting stats in there. The head of the FBI said that their error rate for fingerprint examination was 1 in 11 million. Turns out their error rate ranges from 1 in 680 to 1 in 24. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. In 2015, the DOJ said that their comparison was flawed in 96% of cases. 96% of cases. <laughs> In one of the cases, the prosecutor said it was one in 10 million that hairs belonged to anyone else uh, than the person that was on trial. The hair later came back belonging to a dog. Wow. In 2009, the National Academy of Sciences um, performed the most sweeping independent survey of the state of forensic science to date. It was a bombshell. Quote, most forensic evidence, including, for example, bite marks and firearm and tool mark identification, is introduced in criminal trials without any meaningful scientific validation, uh, detrimentation of error rates or reliability testing to explain the limits of, of the discipline. So really, you know, they're calling all of this evidence into question now, now that science is and that was only in 2009. So I, I'm not really sure what's going on in 2019 yeah. or 20, actually. Um, but they are calling all of this into question. Another huge part of this case were the disturbing notes found in James' home. However, after his second suicide attempt, you know, I said that he was put into, you know, a, a hospital, involuntarily put into a hospital. And he started seeing a therapist who encouraged James to, James to write his feelings down. So he said that when he was drunk and he was angry, he would write these letters instead of going out and getting into trouble. So I'm not sure. As of 2000 or as of August 30th, 2019, a split decision has been made on whether or not James could get a new trial. And that's basically where his trial sits. They haven't decided whether or not to give him a new trial 
Um, but people are convinced that this evidence is not true. It's, yeah. it's not a science and therefore he should at it's the not, very least get a new trial. Yeah. It doesn't, um, it doesn't, uh, like go beyond like a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. I think it leaves a reasonable doubt. Yeah. And his, um, his lawyers are predicting that he might get an acquittal. Um, if you know, they ever move forward with this case. So, you know, I'm not really sure. There's a lot to this case. Obviously, he's he suffered from severe mental illness. Obviously, there was some weird stuff happening with the ATF agents. Um, so I don't know. I guess we'll see. And if we have any updates, I'll definitely, definitely, definitely let you know. But that is it for this case. Hmm. Pretty crazy case. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. And we look forward to talking to you in our next episode. See you guys later. Bye. Hey guys, this is Tori from Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. My co-host Katie and I drop brand new episodes every single Thursday about all things true crime, horror, and conspiracies. Each week, we pick a different theme like disappearances, unsolved cases, or killer couples, and we tell you all about the crimes that were committed. On every other Tuesday, we take your stories that you write into us and read them for our mini episodes. Come hang out with us and let us know that the Forensic Miles podcast sent you.